If you've been here the last three Sundays or so, you may have been getting used to 30-minute sermons from me. That's kind of what they've averaged out as. And I just want you to know up front, those days are probably over, all right? We're going to have to go a little bit longer this morning. And that's primarily because we've got to do a little introduction. Um, So we're we're starting a new sermon series today. And uh, if you haven't been here, I'll I'll restate what it is. We're going to be spending the next 16 weeks, actually 15 weeks. One of those weeks is Easter Sunday, and we'll do something different that day. But the next 15 weeks, going through Old Testament minor prophets with an emphasis on the book of Micah. Okay, So 10 of those Sundays, we're going to be in the book of Micah. I'm going to be walking us through that book from beginning to end. And then the other five... Sundays in that over that period of time, we're going to be looking at the books of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, and Malachi. And each of those are going to be covered in one week each. Okay? So that's where we're that's where we're headed. Um, so I, I wanted to give you a little introduction as to what the minor prophets, why the minor prophets, what are we doing there? The first question to ask is really this. Why are they called minor prophets? Why are they called minor prophets? That you, you would you would deduce from that that there must be something called major prophets, and you're kind of right on that regard. There are the, the the Old Testament prophets are broken up into the majors and the minors. The only difference is length. Okay, the reason the minor prophets are called minor is just because they're short. They're just short little little prophecies, short little books in our Bibles. They are not less important than the major prophets. The major prophets just are really long, like the book of Isaiah, for example, or Jeremiah, right? So that's the, that's the difference. That's why we call them minor prophets. The other question to ask then is, when were they written? To whom were they written? Kind of, kind of help us to get a little bit into context as to what we're stepping into. I want to put up on the screen for you a little timeline, all right? Just to kind of help set these things in their place. So if you can see this up here, and it's a little bit off the screen, but over here we see Solomon, all right? So this is the end of the reign of King Solomon. You'll know he's the, the third king in the history of, of Israel's kings. You start off with Saul, then you get David, right? And then his son Solomon reigns. And because of some disobedience and sin in Solomon's life, the Lord tells him that the kingdom is going to be taken. The kingdom is going to be divided. And so you see, whoops, hit the wrong button. Hang on a second. You see this, this little squiggly mark represents the divided kingdom. And what happened to the nation of Israel is that it split into the, the, the north and the south. The north were, uh, was the, the position of 10 of the 12 tribes, okay? And the south was the other two remaining tribes. And when you read through the Old Testament and you see after that divide, Israel, it's usually speaking about those, the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes. Sometimes the word is used to talk about everybody, but as a, as a nation, as a, as a kingdom under a king, uh, the northern kingdom would be Israel, and then the southern kingdom would be called Judah. All right, and then the the uh, if you walk a little further down the timeline, you'll see that that this portion is the exile. So what happens is that in this period of time, God's people have just fallen fallen into a pattern of continual disobedience, and God is warning them like if if, we're, if there's going to be judgment here, if you're not repenting, if you're not turning back. 
You're going to be carried off by your enemies. And that's what happens in the exile. And if you were around uh, the last year or two, you know we've covered some of that period of time by looking at the book of Daniel. Daniel is a book about some of the young men, Daniel included, and his friends who were carted off and carried into Babylon. That was the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom was exiled into Assyria. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. That's showing up here in 722 B.C. And again, uh, the southern kingdom fell in 586 B.C. These are the minor prophet books. and So you can see that they're all written before, kind of during or after that big exile moment. So what these, what these books are doing are these, are these are prophets that God has sent to His people. Sometimes they were speaking to the northern kingdom. Sometimes they were speaking most often to the southern kingdom. And sometimes they were speaking to surrounding nations. But it was all about the warning about this coming judgment. The explanation of the judgment. Or after the exile and the return, how do you now set up and establish life again here in Jerusalem as you come back to rebuild it. That's what these prophets are really doing. Okay, You'll see that Micah is situated right here, written around 735 B.C. So this is, this is a, a prophecy. Micah was, was specifically into the, the southern kingdom, but we're going to see that his, his prophecy actually speaks to both. He's a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And he's warning about the coming judgment, the coming exile. Okay? So that gives you hopefully a little bit of a picture as to kind of why, uh, to whom, and to, 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 and when these books were written, and specifically this book was written. Let's talk a little bit specifically about Micah himself. Who was Micah? And, and again, when and to whom specifically was he writing? Look at verse one of Micah chapter one. It says, in Excuse me, it doesn't say in, it says the. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So this is the word of the Lord. It's a vision, something he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. I'll explain that in just a minute. And we get the time frame. It was during the reigns of these kings. So the first thing I want you to notice is Micah's name himself. Okay? Micah's name himself. It means something in Hebrew. It means this. Who is like the Lord? Or who is like Yahweh? Who is like I Am? That's what his name means. That's significant because that's a question that will play a role in the prophecy itself. All right, We're going to see that question arise as we go through it. But it's also just his given birth name, which tells us a little something probably about Micah's family background. It was not uncommon for people of this era to have a name like this, a name that meant something like who is like God or something about God or, or maybe uh, some other kind of pagan God around them. They named themselves oftentimes around the God that they worshipped. You might recall if you were here when we did the study of Daniel a little while back that Daniel and his three friends who were named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all had Hebrew names that honored God. And yet when they were exiled into Babylon, the Babylonians changed those names into names that would give honor to their pagan gods. 
So for example, Azariah meant who is what God is. That was his Hebrew name. And when he was exiled to Babylon, the Babylonians changed his name to Meshach, which means belonging to Aku, which was the name of one of their gods. Right? So similarly, Micah has a Hebrew name that indicates that he's probably from a, a godly family in Judah, the southern kingdom, and was raised to honor the living God. But where he's from in Judah is noted here in verse 1 as Morasheth. Now, Morasheth was a, was a very small agricultural community. It was well south of Jerusalem. And that's important. And here's why it's important. It means that Micah was a rural outsider. He's speaking into the cities here of Samaria and Jerusalem, but he's not one of them. He's, a, he's an outsider. So much like someone from like a, a poor uh, farming community somewhere downstate coming into the loop and preaching to the investment bankers and the lawyers and the executives, right? And, and you can imagine the reaction of some of those elites of society in the loop if they see some, you know, uh, uh, Jeb Clampett coming in and preaching to them. That, that reference might be way over some of your heads. Wow. <laughs> Think poor farmer, all right? Um, and going kind of like, who, who's this guy? Right? Who is this guy? He's, he's clearly lower than we are. He's not like us. It, it would have it been something like that. And that's, that's again significant because as we're going to see throughout our study, a lot of the preaching that Micah is giving to the cities, the elites in these cities, is, is reflective of a special sensitivity to the abuse of power by the elites of society against the poor and against the marginalized and the vulnerable. One commentator put it this way, he has a burden for the little guy. And you're going to hear that as he preaches. And that's not just the word of Micah. This is the word of the Lord, right? So, so, so God through Micah is telling them of his burden for the little guy. Micah is not lured away by the glittering facade of the elite culture. Now again, we're also told in verse 1 that the time period of this prophecy is during the reigns of Judas kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That puts the date of this prophecy somewhere between 740 and 687 B.C. So as I said earlier, he's a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. They were writing about similar things, similar themes to similar people at a similar time. And what was the big geopolitical situation going on in the world at this time, what was, what was pressing on God's people at this time, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, was the threat of invasion that was posed by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the political and military superpower of the day. And in fact, the Assyrians would conquer the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and they would invade, though not conquer, but they would invade the southern kingdom about 20 years later. And I want to put on the screen just some, some maps to kind of help you again visualize what's going on here. All right. So this is, this is, you know, modern day Israel as we know it, right? Here's the Mediterranean Sea. You've got the, the division of the ten tribes in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, 
and the two tribes in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, and notice their capital cities are Jerusalem in Judah and Samaria in Israel. So Micah is writing into these capital cities, right? These elite places. You get a picture of the, the division of the kingdoms. And then you'll also see this is a map that shows the Assyrian Empire at that time, which stretches all the way from modern day Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia up and through Turkey and down to Egypt. You can see here is the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which eventually are surrounded by and overcome by that kingdom. But you can see this is a superpower, right? It's a superpower. So that gives you a little bit more of a sense of what's going on here. And finally, again, we see that the prophecy was concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, these big capital cities of each kingdom, the north and the south. The message was for both. So now, with that introduction, let's read the opening words of the prophecy. And I want you to imagine this as we're, as we're reading these words. Imagine that we're entering into a courtroom because it's, it's written much like a courtroom drama. Step into a courtroom with me. And we're going to start by hearing the indictment, the opening words of the prophecy. God will judge idolatry. Verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. For the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. That's the indictment. One significant thing that we haven't covered yet or discussed yet from verse 1, at least in detail, is that this prophecy is the Word of the Lord. That's a little bit different than some of the other minor prophets. Some of the other minor prophets, like Amos, for example, which we'll look at, will start off by saying this is, the, this is the word that Amos gave. Now, that's not indicating that that's not from God, but there's an emphasis here that's very clear up front that though this is given to Micah and through Micah, God is wanting the people to hear, this is my word. Don't mistake this for Micah's idea. This is me speaking to you. And in verse 2, there's this summons or this subpoena. Everybody, he's saying, come into court. Listen up. And there's this terrifying announcement. God will be a witness against you. 
Imagine that. If, if, if God were to speak to you, if God were to send you a message, that's the last message you want to get from God, right? I'm coming to be a witness against you. The key to understanding the indictment is found in verse 3. He talks there of high places, right? I'm coming down from my holy place to tread on the high places of the earth. The high places of the earth represent places of false worship. It's the high places, like on a mountaintop, where altars to false gods are set up. And that's idolatry. That's idolatry. And remember what idolatry is. It is looking to anyone or anything to provide you with that which only God can truly provide for you. Another way of saying that is that idolatry is replacing God with another object of worship as your source of security or well-being or comfort or hope. And so he's saying to them, there are high places in your midst. You've set up idols and I'm coming to tread upon them. Verse 4, it says he's going to lay waste to these high places. Mountains are going to melt like wax. Valleys splitting open. He will do it swiftly. He will do it powerfully like water falling from a waterfall. God will judge idolatry. I think it's appropriate to stop and ask at this point, does it bother you to think of God as being wrathful? Wrathful against idolaters. Does it strike you as unloving for God to talk about His anger and judgment? I think that's a hard thing for many in our culture to swallow and many in the church to swallow. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a hard thing for us to swallow because wrath is a function of love. And I want to explain that in a way that I think you can wrap your minds around. When the object of your love Think about someone someone that you love. If the object of your love is being threatened by the danger of a destructive force, it's only loving to deal swiftly and forcefully with that danger, right? Or deal even swiftly and forcefully with that person that you love to help them, to shake them out of that dangerous place or dangerous behavior. So for example, if I were to find heroin in my, in my kid's backpack, my, my reaction isn't going to be uh, soft. Because I love my kid, if I, if I, if I, if I think they're in immediate danger of doing something that, that, could, that could deeply harm them or kill them, I'm going to deal harshly with the heroin, first of all. I'm going to destroy it. And I'm going to deal swiftly with my child in helping them to see the danger that they're in. Because I love them. That's, that's the way we need to understand God's wrath against idolatry. Now here's the thing. So far, this, this kind of judgment talk from God is not new to God's people. They've heard Him talk like this before. But there's something kind of unique here. What they're used to hearing Him say when He talks like this is, is he's, he's directing it to their pagan neighbors. I'm going to judge your idolatry, right? This indictment, however, packs its most heavy punch in verse 5 when he says, and this, all this is for the transgression of Jacob. 
for the sins of the house of Israel. This isn't about the neighbors. This isn't about the pagans out there. God's saying, no, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about my own people. This is what you're guilty of. Both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, both in Samaria and in Jerusalem, it's you. And the idolatry that he's accusing them here is found in verse 7. He's pointing out their adultery. He's saying, you've taken your wealth, you've taken blessings from me, and you've used that to purchase a prostitute. Now there's a, there's a very real sense in which he's talking about a blatant sin with their money and, and blatant sin with their sexual immorality. But there's a, there's a broader accusation here that, that really points to this overriding posture of syncretism in their society. And by syncretism, I mean this commingling of their, their worship of God with worldliness. They've synced up with the ways of the world around them. And I think when they heard Him say, it's you, this probably hit God's people like a slap in the face out of left field. I honestly don't think they saw it coming. I, I think their reaction would have been probably something like, what, me? Us? Why? Well, because they could say, especially in Judah, especially in the southern kingdom, that things were still looking pretty good on the surface. This is a people who still went to temple on the Sabbath. They still kept certain commandments and religious ceremonies. They would talk about their love for God. But their hearts were far from Him because they'd been so taken captive by the worship and the ways of the world that they couldn't see where their idols lay. There's, there's, there's sort of this, this, this crazy thinking in adultery sometimes where it's, it's like the, the man caught in adultery could say to his wife, I, I still love you. I just love her too. As if that somehow makes sense. Remember in Matthew 25, when Jesus was talking about the judgment day, the day that He would, sh he would separate the sheep from the goats, and He said to the people who were the goats, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave Me no food. I was thirsty and you gave Me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome Me. Naked and you did not clothe Me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? This is a slap out of left field. What are you talking about? And Jesus said that He will answer them on that day, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to Me. And they were shocked to learn that He was casting them out into judgment. This prophecy in Micah, I believe, is shocking like that. 
It's shocking like that. And, and I believe that we in the modern church need to hear it and apply it to ourselves in the same way. How have the ways and the worship of the world been so commingled into your sense of and understanding of Christianity that you can't tell where one ends and the other begins? It's a hard question, right? It's a good question. Are we so captured by our culture that we don't seem to notice? Listen to how David Strain applies this to the modern American church. He says, how easy for us amidst affluence and ease to ignore the weakest and the least in our city. To look the other way at someone else's problem. How easy for us in our cultural Christianity to worship cheerfully on a Sunday while ruthlessly tearing down the little guy Monday through Friday because, hey, it's not personal, it's just business. How easy to indulge open wickedness in our children and our children's children because in our shame culture, it's easier to look the other way than to face up to it so long as everyone looks the part and says the right things and nobody opens up any closet doors, we'd rather they're left closed. Yeah, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a young woman recently who told me of a church that she had been attending and she said, this is, this is the best church I've ever attended. And I knew of the church and its pastor. I knew that they are a solid biblical church. I know the Gospel is preached there week in and week out. But then she went on to talk about living with her boyfriend without batting an eye as if her sexual immorality was not at all in conflict with her faith. Wasn't in conflict with her obedience to God. That's cultural syncretism. That's spiritual adultery. It's actually literal adultery too. Or, or think of it this way. How Bible-believing churches in the Jim Crow South could affirm that all men and women are created equal as image bearers of God, that the church should dwell in unity and then at the same time support segregation in their worship services. That's cultural syncretism. And it's idolatry. And there's a lot of ways that we could, we could kind of look out there and see that hypocrisy, right? We, there's lots of things that, that we could identify as we look at the church or we look at the way Christians behave and these are obvious examples, but here's the rub. Okay, here's the rub. I have to ask myself, how am I guilty of the same idolatry? How am I guilty of that? How have I been so influenced and captivated by my sinful culture that I can't even see how it breeds hypocrisy in my own worship of God? Is it possible that God would say of me, of you, of our church, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I know that's hard to hear, but we need to hear it. That's the point of Micah's prophecy. God's speaking to his own people, and he's saying, It's you. You got to hear this. Listen up. And Micah wants us to see the awful danger 
to which presuming upon the grace of God exposes us. It's all, it's, everything's fine. Everything's okay. Are you sure? <laughs> he will discipline and rebuke us if we shrug our shoulders in indifference and fail to repent of worldliness, judgment begins with the household of God. That's the indictment. That's the indictment. And there's more to come. We'll move on now to the evidence. The irony of idolatry in verses 10-16. to For sake of time... And you'll see that this is difficult to read. I'm just going to read the first couple verses. So let's look at verses 10 and 11. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Sapphur, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethizel shall take away from you its standing place. Now if you glance down verses 12 through 16, you'll see that it's basically a lot of the same kind of language there. He's talking to different cities or villages with these names that are hard to read, right? And he's saying something to them that has a, uh, a sense of discipline or a sense of judgment there. Now again, I know it's hard to grasp passages like that when we, when we read them. They're full of all these ancient names and cities and towns that have, that have no meaning to us. And again, they're really hard to pronounce. But there are two things to pick up here in these verses, 10 through, through 15 really, and into 16. The first has to do with the names of the towns themselves. We miss the irony and the intended puns that Micah uses here when we read these in our English Bibles and we don't understand Hebrew. But that's exactly how it reads in Hebrew. There's an irony here. There's puns here. Look again at verse 10. There's an example of this. Beth le Ephra literally means house of dust. Okay, that's what it means. House of dust. And here the Lord says, house of dust, roll yourselves in dust. In verse 11, Sapphire means beauty town. And he says to beauty town, your inhabitants will be naked and ashamed. They're puns. Not for comedic sake, but for irony's sake. Each of the towns mentioned in verses 10-16 through have a similar pun attached to their name. Why? Think of it this way, because the names of these towns represent their identity, the people's identity, their sense of pride. People tend to associate their sense of, of pride in where they come from as a symbol of their strength and, and their sense of self. And so here, this prophecy is saying that this is, this is like your idolatry. You've tied yourselves and your security to idols but ironically, it's these very, very idols that will betray and crush you. It'd be like if this prophecy were given to Chicagoans and the Lord were to say, look, you call yourselves the city of broad shoulders. But listen, the weight of your pride and your self-sufficiency will crush you like rubble. You windy city with your towering structures of concrete and steel that's who you are. They're going to be blown down by the coming tornado and scattered like paper blowing in the wind. 
There's a declaration of looming judgment for idolatry that will be exacted both by the idol itself and ultimately by God. On the one hand, the idol will crush you because that's what idols do. They promise peace. They promise security. They promise pleasure and fulfillment on the surface. But then they pull the rug out from under you and enslave you in the long run. And on the other hand, this is the very judgment of God. Because as it says in Romans 1, God gives us up to our idols. He'll give us over to them, to the lusts of our hearts, our dishonorable passions, to a debased mind, that in them we might receive the due penalty of our error. There's a terrible irony in idolatry. When you place your trust in money and material things, it's the unpredictable and unreliable nature of the economy itself that will undo you and bankrupt you. When you put your, 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 your hope and your sense of security into relationships or into your family or maybe the desire for a family, it's those very relationships that end up breaking your heart. If sexual pleasure becomes our idol, we, we often find that, that it demoralizes us by the emotional detachment, the guilt, the shame, even physical damages or disease that may accompany our promiscuity or addiction. That's true of any kind of addiction. Our idols will destroy us. That's judgment. That's the first thing we can take away from verses 10 to 16. The, th- the second thing is, is, is a little shorter. It's, it's, it's just this actual progression of that judgment. These towns aren't just randomly named. They they're, they're actually serve as like a road map. It's a map that, 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 it, that will be used by the Assyrian army when they come in and, and finally conquer the northern kingdom and invade the southern kingdom. They're going to walk through these towns in this order and conquer them as a slow progression all the way up until the gates of Jerusalem. And so I think, I think the prophecy is saying something to us like this. Uh, the judgment of idolatry is, is the same way. You, you attach yourself to these idols and, and it just starts to come for you. It's a progression until eventually it gets right up to the gate of your soul and sacks you. Church, this is a warning we need to hear. Don't be lulled to sleep by spiritual indifference or the familiarity and ease of your comfortable life. The Lord will come out of His place and He will tread upon the high places of the earth. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So listen up. Listen to the Word of the Lord before it's too late. There's an alarm bell ringing here. Micah's ringing an alarm bell to wake us out of the spiritual slumber before the wrath that is to come. Verse 16, 
He says, make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. There's this warning of the exile to come, but this idea of making yourself bald, it's a, it's just, it's a picture of shame. Shave your head. Cover yourselves in shame. This is shameful, he's saying. So how can we flee that? Where's the refuge? Lastly, the defense. Who will intercede for us? Here's the bad news. There's actually not much of an answer for that in Micah chapter 1. This prophecy in its totality is about 70% judgment. I'm talking about the whole book. 70% judgment, 30% hope, but that hope doesn't come till later chapters. I'm not going to leave you hopeless here. For a sense of hope and escape now, we have to look at the overarching storyline of the Bible. Micah fits into the overarching story of the Bible, the story of God, the story of salvation. And there is this ever small illusion to that hope here, even in Micah chapter 1. It's found in verses 8 and 9. Who will intercede for God's people in Jerusalem? The answer in Micah 1 is Micah himself. You see him talk about that in verses 8 and 9. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The bad news for now, and Micah knows it, is that the only thing he can really do is wail and lament. He can't save God's people from this judgment. He can just sort of sit there and join in with them and, and he, can, he can strip himself naked and bare and, and he, can, he, can, he can join them in their shame. That's all he can do. There's no rescue. He's saying, look, I'm weeping and I'm, I'm grieving for you. I want you to join me in mourning over sin before you must be left instead to mourn over judgment. Mourn now or mourn later. Mourn now over sin and repentance and find relief or mourn later as judgment falls, which there, there will be no rescue. That's all he can do. But here's the allusion to hope. We need to remember as he does try to intercede for his people as an advocate that his name is significant. Remember what it means. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? The answer is no one. No one. But, what if somebody else walks into the courtroom? What if someone greater than Micah, who can actually intercede and be their advocate, step forward and answers the question, who is like God, by saying, I am. I am like God because I am Him. This is where we need to look to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus did come into the courtroom, as it were, by entering into our world as one of us. And as one of us, who is also fully God, he can say, as, as, and I'm going to read as Stephen Um put it so brilliantly in his commentary, because I love how he phrases. Jesus could say this, I am the Lord who will become naked so that you will be clothed with my righteousness. I am the Lord who will be rejected so that you will be fully accepted and embraced. I am the Lord who will become unclean and contaminated by your idolatry so that you may be rescued from its judgment and its attraction. I am the advocate. This advocate, this rescuer is the only one who will be able to help us dismantle our idols. He's the only one who can absorb the judgment of God so that we can be freed by the power of the Gospel. The perfect legal advocate is the Lord Himself. He is the only one who can answer the question, who is like our God? He's the only one who can free us from putting idols on the throne of our hearts either in His place or in co-occupying that space with Him. He's the only one who will fully satisfy everything we're longing for. So the message here is come to Jesus in repentance. Judgment is coming. For idolaters, flee from the wrath to come. There is a refuge. There is a stronghold. There is a hiding place in the Son of God who bore the wrath and curse of God that everyone who believes in Him might live. Mourn and flee to Christ and find refuge in Him. May God use this prophecy as we walk through it over the coming weeks to continue to unearth in our hearts our idols and point us to our refuge, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that You love us enough to warn us in Your Word. And You've loved us enough to send Your Son for us who is the Word of God. Lord, would You, would you help us this week to, to consider if there's ways, and I know there are, Lord, so help us to consider what they are. The ways that we've so commingled the ways of, of, of worldly thinking and, and our culture into our understanding of worship and how have we dishonored You? Where are we placing trust in things that... that they're not You. How are we blind to it, Lord? Help us to see. Help us to unearth. Help us to repent. Help us to trust in Christ. who's not just our refuge from the wrath of God to come for sin, but who is the object who is worthy of our worship because He satisfies us. He saves us. He breathes life into us. Help us to treasure Jesus over all other things. For 
your glory's sake and for our well-being. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.